Please be seated. Good evening to you. Book of Ecclesiastes tonight, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and uh, you don't have a Bible, you'll be fairly lost this evening without a Bible. And there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention and uh, they'll get one into your hands and then you can follow along uh, with us. And please, if you don't own a Bible, uh, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. So Solomon has made his search throughout all of creation in an attempt to find the meaning and purpose of life in life under the sun, under the S-U-N, in the context of creation. I'm going to forget about God. I'm going to pretend that God doesn't exist, that he doesn't have anything to do with life, and I'm going to try and find the meaning and purpose of life independent of God. And he searches high and low and everywhere for that, and he comes up empty, and as we've noticed the last couple of times together, he does what everybody does, and that is... You then resort to your own. If we're going to reject God's vision, His truth, His plan for our life, then we're forced to come up with our own philosophy on life just simply to survive. And that's exactly what He does. It's a terrible life to live. It's an inferior life to live. Uh, But He does that. And we're in the midst of His sharing a series of Proverbs on how He sees life and the truths that he believes he's come to from observing life and from his life experience. And so he's been sharing these and we've been studying them because they're his uh, personal life philosophy. Some of what he says is true and then some of it isn't true. That's true of everyone who comes up with a philosophy of life and their own ideas of right and wrong and where the meaning of life is found and they try to do it independent of God. Sometimes they're going to stumble on truth just accidentally Sometimes they will uh, actually find truth, have sorted through some things, and it's worth listening to what they have to say, and then other things are just completely bogus and uh, aren't you know, worth the time of day. But that's just the way that it is, and so it is with Solomon here uh, tonight. We pick things up in chapter 10, beginning in verse 2. He said, A wise man's heart is in his right hand, but a fool's heart at his Left, And so the idea is that foolishness leads us into an inferior life. In ancient times, the right hand represented strength. And for most of us, unless you're a lefty, our right arm, our right hand is the strongest hand. It's the strongest arm. It's the most coordinated uh, uh, of the two arms and hands that we have. And so Solomon is simply declaring that the wise man allows his heart to be guided by superior things in life while the fool allows his heart to be guided by inferior things. Verse 3, when a fool walks along the way, uh, he walks out the front door onto the path and he's out in public life. When the fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he is a fool. In other words, a fool can never keep that fact uh, a secret uh, just to himself. Again, the moment that a fool steps outside of his house, uh, his folly is on display. And so the teaching in Solomon is right in this. What we are on the inside is always going to come out. And so that's why we don't want foolishness on the inside. 
We want wisdom which comes from his word. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth, what comes out of our mouth, is always a wonderful way to take our spiritual temperature or to take the spiritual temperature of our heart. It's always the indicator of the quality of our heart. So sometimes we'll stop in the middle of the day and say, wow. I don't like what's coming out of my mouth or a particular incident. You say, man, I got pretty uptight there and, and said some things that I don't want to say and, and I don't want to be there. Lord, this is more than a problem of my mouth. This is something wrong with my heart. I want to get this right with you. And we start to address the core of the problem. Search me. Know me. What's going on here? And he's always faithful to show us. In verses 4 through 7, um, he teaches us basically that how, how to conduct ourselves before foolish leaders and uh, when we encounter uh, fools in high places. And I don't know if you've ever run into a fool in high places. Um, our assistant pastors run into that on a regular basis, but we don't want... They're raising their hands back up there and waving handkerchiefs. But, um, but seriously... This is uh, what he addresses, how to conduct ourselves when we encounter fools in high places. So it must occur, we know that it does. He says in verse 4, if the spirit of a ruler rises against you, don't leave your post. Don't quit on the spot. For uh, conciliation pacifies great offenses. And so if your ruler or your boss or your superior uh, wrongly gets upset with you over something, don't get in a huff and quit over what it is that they've uh, said. Solomon says, keep your cool in the middle of all of that. The odds are they're going to calm down and uh, you can quit, you can walk away in a huff, and you can claim a moral superiority in doing so. And boy, you made a stand and, you know, you walked right out on the whole thing and quit the job, you know, on the basis of, of the fact that they treated you poorly and all of that. But Solomon warns uh, essentially that if you do that, you're soon going to discover that uh, if you quit every job that has a fool in a position of authority over you, then you're going to find you have no place to work in the world. And so he says, don't be driven by the emotion of the moment, especially when our pride has been hurt. And of course, we're not to ever make any major decision or any decision in our life under the uh, influence of emotion or the flesh or our pride has been hurt. Um, certainly in any job that we hold as Christians or a position of influence that God has put us in, we're not free to come or go or quit or stay uh, at our whim. If we believe that God has placed us in that position, then we can only walk away from it with his permission. And so it protects us from that. He goes on to say in verse 5, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun as an heir proceeding from uh, the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich, and these are not people that, these are people who have become rich by virtue of hard work, um, intelligence, wisdom, 
And, and so there's such a class warfare going on in the United States and the world today that sometimes we just think of the rich as being all of them, you know, uniformly terrible or something. The indoctrination is going on today. But here it's talking about the rich favorably. Uh, these are the people that should be leaders, and they're not leaders. He said, folly, people that are foolish are put in these positions of great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. I have seen servants on horses... And, of course, that was the position of a king or a leader, while princes walk on the ground like servants. And so Solomon is saying, in other words, that in this world, promotion, or who it is that ends up occupying the highest positions in a government or in a business or in the military, etc., etc., often has nothing to do with the person's actual merit or their abilities, but promotion in this world is often very illogical and uh, very, very uh, idiotic. And so he had uh, witnessed, we've got an amen over here somewhere on that, not an amen, but a chuckle anyway. So Solomon had uh, evidently witnessed what all of us will witness if we live long enough and get enough life experience related to it, and that is absolute fools occupying the highest positions in life and servants given positions of leadership while those who have the character, they have the experience, they have the life experience that's needed to lead, then their lives are wasted on menial tasks. And Solomon says it's important to understand that, that this world is an unfair world in terms of who gets promoted and who ends up in the top positions, not always, but oftentimes. Uh, it is true, and you can chafe against it and fight against it all your life, but Solomon in his kind of uh, philosophy here is saying in essence that you've got to kind of accept that about life too. So sometimes we see this kind of thing happen because of nepotism. Uh, people are putting relatives in positions that they have no business being in simply because they're a part of a bloodline, not having anything to do with their skill or uh, with their ability. Communism has done that. I've read some of the books of the history of you know, uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia and certainly was the case in uh, Russia, communism under Stalin and all. They just took and slaughtered the professional uh, class, just killed them by the millions and then just put people, they just, well, the idea was everybody's equal. No, not everybody is equal. You don't want me performing surgery on you. There may be certain things that I may do better than a, a, a surgeon might do, but surgery is not one of them. And so not everybody is equally skilled at everything in life, and this idea that you just shove any kind of person into any position and it's all going to pan out okay, well, they found out that it doesn't work. But So that kind of stuff is always... Uh, go on. So occupying a high position in life is never an indication of a person's uh, skill or their ability or their character. Those things are revealed on the basis of the kind of decision-making and leadership that a person demonstrates in that position, not because they hold that uh, position. That's uh, good to know in life. Uh, verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it. Just seeing it. Anybody? Okay. I'm 
I haven't done that yet, but I haven't dug a lot of pits. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent, and he who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered uh, by doing it. And so here's Solomon, basically very poetic way of commending caution uh, in life, and that if a person doesn't possess some uh, semblance of caution in their life in terms of digging a pit or breaking through a wall. That was construction in those days, breaking down a wall and, and then enlarging maybe a room or something. Snakes would hide, hide in these kind of places in the Middle East and all. He talks there about quarrying stone or uh, splitting wood, that if there isn't some caution in terms of uh, these activities in life in general, then uh, you're going liable to become accident-prone or become a gold winner in the X Games. <laughs> Those are the craziest risk-takers in life. And, uh, but uh, listen, uh, this, the jury is still out because I, what I want to do is I want to meet them when they're 60 and 65 and hobbling all over the place and everything. But uh, So he's, he's saying, you know, there's a place for caution in life, and uh, that's a good thing to hear as well. Some people, I'm a naturally cautious uh, person, and other people are not, and so they need that kind of an encouragement. Slow down and think a little bit. Verse 10, the axe is dull. Uh, if the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength to cut down the tree, but wisdom Bring success. Abraham Lincoln famously uh, is quoted as saying, Give me six hours to cut down a tree, and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. And so that's wisdom, uh, making sure that the tools that you have are uh, sharp enough. And so the wisdom of staying sharp, Solomon is talking about. Smarts is uh, better than brute strength, and so it's Good idea to work with sharp tools. Otherwise, the labor of the job takes a lot longer, takes a lot more effort. The time spent in sharpening the axe will be more than made up by the time, less time that it will take to chop down the tree. Spiritual applications are tremendous related to this too. Staying sharp as a Christian. And I think one of the most important ways that we stay sharp as a Christian spiritually is our daily devotional time in the morning to begin the day. And sometimes the crowd, you know, we've got the pressures and so many things that have to get done today, and and then the pressure is on to crowd that out or not do it at all or just do it for three minutes while we're heading out the door or while we're commuting to work or something like that. And and so we fail then to sharpen the axe uh, for the day. And the interesting thing is, is that let's say you have uh, 40 minutes or let's say you have an hour. Let's say an hour is a part of your devotional time in the morning and you invest that hour in being sharp spiritually. You will more than make up that time in the course of the day uh, on average. Just being in tune with the Lord, being right with the Lord, 
um, in tune with his voice, uh, in tune with his spirit, how to handle people and all of these things, the wisdom that he will give. That time is never, ever lost. It's always made up for uh, in the day. And so the importance of that uh, in our life. In verses 11 through 15, uh, Solomon shares his thoughts uh, on those who talk too much. So he had some experience with this apparently. Uh, he, he was married to 700 women and uh, had 300 concubines. And it wasn't like he wasn't around a lot of men as well. So this guy was like tapped into people in incredible numbers. But most of us will, in the course of our life, know somewhere between 1 and 20 people that it's just like, Oh, boy, this one's a talker, you know. And so we may recognize a little bit about that in our lives. Um, Not that we're ever, you know, talkers or we ever create a problem for anybody else. Uh, Of course we don't. That's why we come here to church. Verse 11, a serpent may bite when it is not charmed. The babbler is no different. And so the person who just talks and talks and talks and says whatever it is that comes uh, to their mind about anyone and everything, ultimately they will bite you, Solomon says, when they're no longer charmed by you. And so the idea is if they will talk smack to you, they will talk smack about you. It's just the way that it goes. Uh, Verse 2. 12, rather. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool swallow him up. And so uh, graciousness comes from the lips of a wise man, but ultimately uh, the fool, he ends up destroying himself by his own speech. Sooner or later, uh, people figure that kind of a person uh, out. We expose ourselves if we're that kind of a person ultimately. Verse 13, the words of his mouth begin with foolishness and the end of his talk is raving madness. Uh, Maybe you've talked with a person where the longer you talk with them, the scarier it gets. So, all right, all right, we've got, we're three sentences into this conversation and this person's talking complete madness. All right, we're six sentences into this conversation and, and uh, this is insanity that they're speaking now. I get a little antsy. I start to look around for the exit out of the place, you know, and fake a seizure or a coughing attack or something uh, to get away uh, from them. But there are those kinds of people that the longer they talk, you just say, okay, they can't say anything worse than what they have just said in a public setting. And they do. And you say, I can't take any more. I'm going to excuse myself. And so you walk around the gathering, the family reunion, whatever it is, and 45 minutes later you still hold, see them holding court over a particular part of the family that's trapped by them. You think, oh, my, what must he be saying now in that situation? And it's true. It's an interesting observation in life. Verse 14, a fool also multiplies his words. Uh, no one knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The labor of fools wearies them. 
for they do not even know how to go to the city. In other words, here's the kind of person that goes on and on and on and on, even when they don't know what in the world they're talking about. The kind of person, Solomon says, who doesn't know the future, but they talk like they know the future, everything about the future. Or uh, he uses the illustration here of the fact that they can't hold down a job, and yet uh, they talk uh, like an expert on how businesses ought to be run and how the U.S. economy ought to be run, and they're an expert on all kinds of things. And so the person can talk. uh, There isn't anything that they don't know. Uh, Verses 16 through 20 are thoughts concerning uh, foolish leaders and wise Leaders, Verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. That's talking about immature leadership. And your princes feast in the morning. And so a warning against immature leadership, a warning against leaders who want to party instead of work. And so in their minds, they hold the office that they've been elected to as it relates to our uh, nation or the position that they've been appointed to. And they hold that position for the purpose of having fun as opposed to actually leading and governing a nation. And so they are incompetent and they are undisciplined. And so uh, sometimes you can look around our nation. I know there are wonderful elected officials, but uh, they're harder and harder to find. You wonder, does anybody get elected in this country on the basis of competence, number one, and self-discipline, number two? The machine that puts these people into place uh, is a mess, and uh, it's always a recipe for disaster when you have immature leadership who are looking just to have fun in the position rather than working hard and uh, doing their job well. Verse 17, blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles. In other words, he's been well prepared to rule. Uh, And your feasts, those that come alongside him to rule, the princes rather, they feast at the proper time and they feast not for drunkenness, but for strength. They eat in order to be nourished, to then go to work again and, uh, and work hard uh, for the nation. And so a country's blessed when they have a leader that has that kind of character. They're disciplined, uh, they're well prepared for the position, and they surround themselves with people who are uh, that very same kind as well. Verse 18, because of laziness, and this is talking about laziness in leaders, laziness in incompetent leaders, because of laziness, the building decays. And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. And so a roof or a building or a government or a life will ultimately collapse if it it is not properly maintained. You cannot neglect these things uh, in life or ultimately they will decay to a point in which they uh, will collapse. And so the importance of that, and of course it's very, very uh, true also of a church, and that's why God puts leaders within a church, um, a church that is uh, functioning well, a church that is influential for the kingdom of God. That doesn't just happen. That happens uh, because there are people that are in a position and they are being diligent to maintain uh, the spiritual tone of the ministry 
and the work of the ministry. Verse 19, uh, a feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. It's interesting. Now, again, the context of this is it's talking about these incompetent leaders who are immature, they're in the positions that they're in in order to have fun and to enrich themselves and advance themselves, not to do what's right for uh, the nation or whatever group of people that they're overseeing. And so when things begin to go wrong because of their immaturity and their lack of a work ethic and their lack of discipline, they will never look at it and say things are going wrong because we lack maturity and we lack a strong work ethic. They will always conclude it is because we don't have enough money. And so they will then want to raise taxes in order to bring more money in to hire more people to do the very things that they ought to be uh, doing. There's nothing new under the sun. This is as old as 3,000 years. That's how long ago Solomon lived. Verse 20, do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich talking about a man in power, even in your bedroom. That's the most private room in the house, right? For a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight may tell the matter. And so Solomon looks and says, listen, I, when you're in a place where you've got these kind of people in position and it's going to really steam you, you're going to get upset, you're going to want to talk about them, but you need to really be careful about that because you might say something in the privacy of your home that gets overheard, that gets taken then to the leader, they find out about it, and then they begin to use the power uh, to uh, track you down and, and make life uh, miserable for you. So he's warning here and, and talking about take a little thought for prudence, take a little thought for self-preservation in terms of what you say about abusive uh, leaders. And it is amazing how something we can say in the most private of circumstances, how some little birdie picks it up and uh, takes it somewhere, and then now it becomes kind of common knowledge. And, of course, it's people. It's not uh, a little birdie. That, that, uh, that saying that we have in our culture, you know, a little bird told me, and then you say something that probably originated from this verse uh, in the Bible. And, of course, leaders today in positions of power, they don't need to depend upon uh, little birdies, and they don't need to depend upon kind of a... Uh, a system of neighbors reporting upon on neighbors like in the uh, former Soviet Union. And uh, today now leaders have uh, a national security agency where they can listen into every phone call that you make, uh, track every email, every text, everything uh, they can follow. And so uh, the whole world has changed. In chapter 11, uh, Solomon talks about the importance of seizing the moment. And he, uh, and he begins with the value of diligence. He says in uh, uh, verses 1 and 2, he talks about seizing the moment concerning generosity. Cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. It will return to you. Give a serving to seven. In other words, feed them, give them a meal, and also even for eight, 
for you do not know uh, what evil will be on the earth. So they talk about in the investment realm, they talk about diversifying. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket, especially in a, uh, times of uncertainty. You diversify, you spread things out. And so Solomon is saying, well, there's something that's way more important in uncertain times than having your money in all of the right places. And who can guess where all those places are? He said the greatest thing is to invest in people. And so uh, take and be generous to seven people in your life, indeed eight people in your life, so that when in uncertain times, if difficulty comes, the likelihood isn't going to be that it'll wipe out all nine of you. Some portion of that group will hold, and uh, then they will be able to take care of the rest. And so in uncertain times, to make sure to be investing in personal relationships, generosity, building a network of relationships in our life. Good relationships in our life are the greatest insurance against uncertainty. I'm going to be okay. I think after those last verses that the government released some anthrax into the room. I think I'll be all right here. You can read my blog. It's at... um, Just kidding. In verses 3 through 6, he talks about seizing the moment to work hard and to do what is right. He said, if the clouds are full of rain... They empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. Reminds me of the Grateful Dead bumper sticker. Everywhere you go, there you are. And the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. Somebody told me another Yogi Berra-ism here tonight where somebody said to him, what time is it? He said, you mean right now? (laughs) Sometimes the most obvious things. He says in verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Solomon is saying that There's so much in life that's outside of our control. In other words, where it rains, what direction trees fall down in a storm, this kind of thing. When it rains, it doesn't rain. How the wind blows and the weather in general, all of these things. And if the farmer only focuses on what they have no control over, which is the weather, instead of focusing on what they do have control over, working hard, sowing the seed, and then we can become too cautious and waiting for perfect conditions and never end up sowing the seed. We end up paralyzed. And so it's his way of saying, don't overthink life or you're going to become self-paralyzed. You're going to become overly cautious. And so we need to focus on what we do have control over in life and not worry about what we don't have control over. Do your best and commit the rest is kind of a sanctified version of all of that. 
And the application is wonderful spiritually. We look at the world today and we see what's happening in our nation and we see spiritually trends that we don't necessarily like. But God is at work and sometimes we can think related to the gospel, the spreading of the seed of the gospel and sharing the gospel. We begin to think, well, will this person and look at them and they're all tatted out and they got sleeves. Will they listen to me? And this one's got gray hair and will they listen to me? And we got all... We don't have any control over any of that or what anybody's going to do. Uh, I've met the nicest people that you can't tell a book by its cover. You know that. The meanest people that you thought would be nice and the nicest people that you thought would bite your head off. And so we can get paralyzed trying to analyze all of it. Just sow the gospel, sow the seed. It'll all get uh, taken care of. Verse 5, as you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. And so the idea is you don't uh, know where the wind comes from. You don't know how a baby's formed in the womb. But that shouldn't stop you from enjoying the wind. And that shouldn't stop you from having a baby. So you don't have to know everything to be productive in life. All you have to do is to do your part. I tell you, it's, it's very good wisdom. Verse 6, in the morning, sow your seed. In the evening, don't withhold your hands. Sow the seed in the evening as well. For you do not know which of the two is going to prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So again, the idea is don't wait for perfection. Don't wait for the perfect moment in order to act or in order to uh, do something. Occasionally in life, we hit things when everything falls right in the line and it's perfect. But most of the time, we're dealing with circumstances that are less than perfect, whether in farming or in business and in life. And Solomon says, just fill the day with a good hard work and everything's going to work uh, out. And so uh, good counsel, good wisdom on his part, very true in spiritual things uh, as well. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, preach the word in season, out of season, when you think it's perfect, when you think it isn't perfect, doesn't matter, just do it and it'll all work out fine. We're not in any of this alone. We're in it with God. Then he comes into uh, chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 7, and he starts to uh, give some focus specifically on youth and uh, instruct youth concerning uh, the wise use of their uh, youth. And somebody said, you know, youth is a wonderful thing. It's too bad that it's wasted on the young. Uh, so here Solomon's going to chime in on all of this in verse 7. He said, truly the light, and this is talking about life, and he's talking specifically about life when you're uh, young, kind of the shining days of youth. Truly the light is sweet. It is a sweet time in life. And it's pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. In other words, to be alive at that time in life. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, uh, yet 
Let him remember the days of darkness, death and grave, that they're coming. For those days will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. He's saying enjoy life. He's not saying enjoy sin. He's saying enjoy life. And, uh, and to know, though, that enjoying life, part of the process and keeping safe in youth in terms of enjoying life is to always realize that um, for how we spend our life, we're going to be brought into judgment for that. Verse 10, therefore, remove sorrow, that is worry or fretfulness. Think positively in this uh, time in life from your heart and put away evil from your flesh for childhood and youth are vanity and not in the idea of that they're a terrible thing, but it talks about childhood and youth being vanity in the sense that they are fleeting Bye-bye. They uh, are there one day and then they're gone. So he says, enjoy life. And I think that's a great exhortation. We have been in like a six-year funk in the United States. And it's not just here. It's the whole world. And part of it's because we're so, so much of where we are is tied into money. It's tied, the idea is that you can only be happy, you can only be fun, have fun if the portfolio is a certain way or the economy is a certain way. Yes, as Christians, we're having trouble because we see decisions that are troubling for us in our spirit. I don't minimize that. That's significant. But there is a place to enjoy life. God wants us to enjoy life. One of the things that's funny, you get a little bit older and you think you need money to enjoy life. But then you remember back when you were 16, 17, 18, 20, 22, you didn't have any money at all. You had all great time. You didn't need anything fancy. All you needed was somebody to have an apartment that you could all come to and bring something to and be together and all. It didn't take a lot of money. It was... but. But that you had some fun, and it's important, not just for young people, but for older people to realize that too. Don't give up on, uh, you know, being happy and giving up on enjoying uh, life. And so he says, enjoy life, but again with the caveat that enjoying life is different from enjoying uh, sin. Sin ruins life. It ruins it. Sin will ruin, it ruins every season in life. It ruins everything about every season in life. No season in life will we ever look back on and say that, that that was funner because of the sin that we engaged in. As long as we maintain a conscience and a clear thinking about assessing our past, we will realize, man, that would have been a lot funner and a lot better if I didn't go to that place. And so that's what he's saying. Enjoy life, but I'm not saying to enjoy sin. Steer clear of that. And the fear of God or respect for God uh, in, in his way of thinking it in an old covenant way, the idea of one day I'm going to stand before God in judgment, that keeps us from uh, going over the line and, and ruining a, a, a fun-filled and a joy-filled uh, season in life that is fleeting. It's gone uh, very, very uh, quickly. So 
It is uh, to live that way, live in such a way that allows our future judgment to be uh, as pleasant as an experience as that season in our uh, life. Now, He lets us know in verses 7 and 9, he says, Enjoy the season of life known as youth. And because he says it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and once it's gone, it's gone. But he tells us in verse 9 that we are to use it for the Lord. You know, one of the most, uh, one of the very, very impactful things um, that I heard kind of in this vein in my, all of my time in Modesto which is my life, my adult life. There was a missionary who spoke at Big Valley Grace Community Church many, many years ago now. We were downtown, 10th and F. And they came to me and they said, there was a missionary, somebody in our church had gotten a uh, CD or, um, or a cassette tape of the message. He said, you've got to listen to this. And I listened to it. And the missionary was speaking. I always love to listen to missionaries. And because uh, I'm not a missionary in, in that sense, so I like to learn what, how they see things. And this guy got up and he spoke to the, that congregation. He could have spoken just as easily to any congregation. And he said, do you know what the, who, who the greatest enemy to the missions movement is in the United States of America? He said, Christian parents... He said, Christian parents who have either children that are still under their roof or they've grown into adult life and who come to their Christian parents, we're not talking about unchristian parents, come to their Christian parents and say, I believe God has called me to be a missionary or I believe that God has called me to spend six weeks or six months with this mission organization and to take this step out and see what God might do. And he said, almost uniformly, Christian parents have the same reaction, and that is they cringe and they think to themselves, let other people do that. You need to finish your education, you need to get a good job, and you need to get your career situated, and then once you've got all that in place, then you can think about these kind of crazy things. And what Christian parents don't understand is what even Solomon knew in the nuttiness of where he was in life. And that is that that season in life does not last forever. And there's something about that age where a person still, still believes that they can change the world. They still believe that God can use them, that nothing is impossible. They haven't been jaded yet. They haven't allowed unbelief and all of the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world to encumber them. They're they're thinking maybe more clearly than they'll ever think in their life. And they've got this fervency. They've got this zeal. They want to do this. They get talked out of it. And ultimately, they end up doing what their parents tell them to do. And then you see them years later, yes, now in their 30s, dutifully attending church, giving to the church, serving in the church, 
walking the walk and talk and walking the talk away from church in the community that they live in, but never ever again with the fire to do that thing that God had called them to do. They're nice, they're polite, and now they're as safe as can be, ready to do to their own children what was done to them. It's a great mistake. It's a tremendous mistake. That is a precious season. And I'm not saying that if you're in this room tonight, that you're going to college and you're getting a career and you're advancing your career, that there's anything wrong with that. If that's what God has for where he's placing you in the world, we just aren't supposed to do that, uh, have that be done to us and to be done to vision that is legitimate. We look and say, yes, God could be doing that in my child's life and to talk them uh, out of that. It is a season you only have once in life. And I'm so glad that when Karen and I got saved and started walking with the Lord there in Calvary Chapel of, of Napa, and we ran headlong into God's calling. I was 25 years old. She was 14. I was 25 years old and she was 20. And we got saved into that environment. And, and it, it, all it was about was the call of God. What is your calling? What is your gifting? Get going. Get rolling. We've got a world to reach. That was just the whole vibe in it. And here I am just months old in the Lord, and I'm ushering in the church, and I'm leading a home Bible study. I'm not waiting till I have a Ph.D. in this. It just started to open up, and everybody was heading into their calling like this, way ahead of where anyone would have you know, remotely thought was sane in terms of the opportunities that were given to us. And we didn't even think they were sane. They were just opportunities. And so we headed out uh, into them. And, and in that environment, you didn't ignore your calling, not for any reason. Everybody was taking the next step in their growth. They understood, God has called me to this. I believe he's called me to this. Now let's get going with this. And I'm... Uh, and left Modesto, started or Napa, driving between Modesto and Napa and Modesto here uh, to begin the church. Three and a half years old in the Lord, 28 years old. And I know that if we did not jump in that season in our life, where you would find me today is I would be a wonderful, quiet asset in some church in Napa, California, but I'd have never gotten to know you which is the richest part of my life, and to be able to serve the Lord and be a church family in this way. It is a finite season, and it is to be seized upon, as Solomon uh, said. And it might be a good thing to ask those of you who are younger, why aren't you leading a home fellowship if that's your calling and your gifting? If you're called to lead, why are, why are you waiting why aren't you ushering? Why aren't you doing all kinds of things? You know, things are goofy today. And, and I don't know, it's diff- it is different today from 30 years ago. And that the way things were in Calvary, Napa, and just in churches in general, um, at least the ones that I had exposure to, there wasn't this, you know, you got the old group and the young group. Young people weren't coming to the Lord and looking for a young church or, you know, hipsters or some kind of a thing. I'm not putting hipsters down. But 
we got saved as younger people in that church, and there were 90-year-olds in the church. There were all kinds of white hair in that room. And we never looked and said, we want to, you know, it's got to be this or it's got to be that. It was, this is our church. And God has planted us in this church, and he's got a calling on our life, and I need to exercise my gifting and my calling in this church. And so we did it. And it's a good word, and it's an important thing for us today. And so, a wonderful exhortation uh, from Solomon here. In verse uh, chapter 12, as he gets into uh, verse 1, he talks about using your youth to grow in your relationship with God in preparation for the difficulties that old age uh, will uh, can bring into a life. He says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. So yes, enjoy yourself, but don't forget about God. And develop a relationship with God before the difficult days come. This is called getting older, which isn't for sissies, as I heard somebody say when I was much younger, an older person, and now I'm saying it. So before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. I'm not there yet, but uh, this is uh, where sometimes it can lead. The single greatest thing that a person can do to prepare for old age is not material. It is spiritual. The single greatest thing that we can do to prepare for old age is to love God and to walk with Him closely and to have a long history with God by the time we get old. Now, not everybody has that luxury. Some people come to know the Lord when they're older. God has grace for all of that. But if we know better, we're raised in a Christian home, raised in a Christian environment, then to use that time to go deep in a relationship with the Lord because youth is also a preparation for harder times that come uh, later in life. And so the only thing that's harder than growing old is growing old without the Lord. And our culture teaches related to youth that it's, it's a time that you can just be frivolous with. You can just waste it. You can just spend it and uh, dispose of it any way that you want. The Bible doesn't look at it, it, it that, that way. It's not a season in life to waste. It's a season in life to enjoy, but then also to use to prepare for future seasons in life. He gives a description Uh, beginning in verses 2 through 5, of the physical decline that's associated with old age. And so I don't want any amens here. Uh, Just a slight groan under your breath uh, will be sufficient. You do hit a place in life, though, and you think you won't. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be in your 20s and your 30s, and you just think it and you do it. Your body just jumps to attention and accomplishes it. And then pretty soon you reach a place where every movement is associated uh, with a sound. It has its own sound. Getting up has its own sound. Sweeping the floor has its own sound. It's its own little whimper, its own little groan to it. So you'll recognize this, some of you. He talks about when the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return uh, after the rain. And so this is referring to uh, walk with God, prepare uh, for old age while you have good eyesight. And he's describing uh, poor eyesight there when you can no longer see the stars and the moon and, and all in the sky. 
In verse 3, he talks about in the day concerning old age when the keepers of the house tremble. The keepers of the house are your hands and your feet. And uh, boy, I tell you, when you're younger, you can throw the kids up in the air and you can catch them and you can, you know, chop down trees. You can do all kinds of things. And then a little bit later in life, they're they're tremblers. You know, they become uh, shakers. And uh, what they used to be able to do, you can't do with them any longer. And these strong men bow down. And so this refers to uh, the legs and the thighs and talks about the shoulders. Life has a way of uh, beginning to make you bow down physically a little bit. When the grinders, what are grinders? Uh, those are the teeth. Uh, that's what's happening. We're grinding that food into mush. That's why you have to um, chew with your mouth closed. So the grinders, they cease as you get older because they are few. And those that look through the windows grow dim. And so how through life we have wonderful things today in terms of medical procedures to remove cataracts. But we're talking about a time where you didn't have that luxury and all of the eyesight would become very dim, like looking through a window that was completely uh, dirty. Verse 4, when the doors are shut in the street and the sound of grinding is low. And so this is talking about the loss of hearing where you're no longer hearing familiar sounds that are on the other side of your front door that would go on in the street that you used to hear. You're no longer hearing familiar sounds uh, within, uh, within the house because the television is up so loud that everyone can hear it. Uh, four houses down uh, the street. When one rises up at the sound of the bird, I knew this would happen to me. It isn't, I'm not afflicted terminally with this particular side of things, but I do remember fondly in, in, younger in life just being able to sleep like a log. What it took to, you know, some youth, what it takes to wake them up. They, they sleep through three alarms and mom has to come in and poke them with some sharp object to make sure they're still alive and get them out of bed. And I tell you, I look at it, you got to get them out of bed. I'm not saying you don't have to do that, but I look at it fondly, you know. So that's a sweet time in life. Pretty soon the first bird that chirps at four... Was that a bird? Was that a bird? And then it's off and on, you know, until you finally do uh, wake up. Talks about here, uh, all the daughters of music are brought low. In other words, you can't sing like you used to sing. Sometimes you'll see on the PBS show, they'll have people that used to have, you know, hit songs in the 60s or the 70s or whatever it might be. And now they're singing. Can't hit those notes anymore, can they? Uh, once in a, a rare one is able to do that. Paul Rogers can still do it. And, uh, but very few people can do that. The older you get, now you've got to bring in the backup singers to then hit the notes that you can't hit anymore and fool everybody. Uh, but nobody can hear in the audience anyway. And uh, so they can't uh, pick, any of that, uh, pick any of that up. And so he then talks about... Um, that verse 5, also they're afraid of heights. We get, we, get, um, we get afraid of heights. I mean, we lose our, we feel vulnerable in terms of 
uh, of that. And also the terrors of the way. We used to walk out the front door, head out into life, head out into, you know, the freeways and all the different places where people were, any part of town. There was no fear. I mean, anything that could happen, we could handle ourselves. You get older and you realize, man, I'm vulnerable now. Anybody wanted to take me out or do that knockout game or whatever, there's nothing I could do about it, you know. So there's a vulnerability that comes with growing a little bit older. It really is, it's not a depressing, it's a fascinating, uh, very poetic uh, uh, view of, of, uh, of, of growing older. He talks about when the auto, uh, almond uh, tree blossoms. And so we know a little bit about don't, that, don't we? And then the almond trees, they blossom, and what do they do? They come out pink, but then what do they do? They turn white. And so the hair turns white, and then what happens to the autumn blossoms after, uh, almond blossoms after they turn white? They fall out, don't they? Fall to the ground. So the whole sequence is there. You go gray and then you lose your hair, uh, on top of it. Listen, I mean, it's, it's right here in the Bible. It talks about when the grasshopper is a burden. In other words, little, little things become big things. I mean, decisions you used to make just like this, just snap, boom, 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 nothing to them. Bring me a hundred more. Get a little bit older and small decisions become a major thing. It's just the way that it is. So you hit a grasshopper on the path and you're with your older friend. What are we going to do? Do we step over it or do we walk around it? Let's go to Mr. T's and get a cup of coffee and a donut to talk about it a little bit. And it's, you know, you got to laugh, don't you? You lose your sense of humor while you're getting older. You're dead. You're, you're through. Desire fails. Of course, appetite fails. Sexual appetite begins to fail. For man goes to his eternal home. At the end of all that, then a person dies and the mourners go about in the streets. They have your funeral. And so he lays out that whole uh, kind of uh, progression. And it is funny and and it's good to laugh about it. Then he describes death specifically in verses uh, 6 and 7. He says, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken. In a rich person's house... Um, they would put an oil lamp in the middle of the room, and the oil lamp, would, as it's spoken a, a, about here, it's a golden bowl, so that talks about a rich person, and it's hung on a silver cord, and they would fill the oil, and, and uh, if that uh, was to fall to the ground, it would break, and so it's talking about death. And the idea, Solomon, is, is that death comes, that, that particular um, uh, oil lamp would have been the possession of a rich person. Solomon's saying, it comes to you, death comes whether you're rich or whether uh, you're poor. So the description of death, the silver cord is loosed and the golden bowl is broken. In other words, the light goes out. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. You go to a well and they drop down, you know, the pitcher that would go down into the water. That breaks uh, the rope or the mechanism that allows you to bring the rope back up that breaks. In other words, talking about the uh, circulation system of the heart, it fails ultimately and and you die. It's just different ways of talking about 
uh, how uh, death occurs. And then he says, then after that, the dust will return uh, to the earth as it was, will be buried, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And Solomon says, before all of that happens, he says to the youth, he's still talking to youth, you need a relationship with God before that comes into your life and uh, because you're going to need that relationship when ultimately you face death and everyone ultimately faces death. A relationship with God is the single greatest preparation for death. Solomon then now in verse uh, uh, 8 says, Vanity of vanities, all, uh, says the preacher, all is vanity. And so he comes full circle now. He began the whole book by talking about vanity and vexation of spirit. Life is emptiness. That's what vanity means. Uh, under the sun, apart from God, it's just meaningless. It's empty. It's frustrating. He's laid out his whole thing. He's laid out his search for meaning in life independent of God. He's laid out his whole personal philosophy that he's uh, turned to in order to survive and he declares concerning all of it it's just empty 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 i've searched everywhere for the meaning of life everywhere but in god himself and i have come up empty and then solomon says in verse 9 and moreover because the preacher was wise speaking of himself he had a reputation for wisdom He still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and he sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher uh, sought to find acceptable words and what was written was upright words of truth. And so he's giving kind of um, here the authority for being able to write this book that he's written, the validity of the truth that, uh, that he's recorded here. And he says it's based upon his qualification, uh, known qualification as a teacher of wisdom in Israel at that time. And then he calls as a second uh, endorsement of his authority the considerable hard work and thought that he put into this book. He was a careful scholar in all of it. And, uh, but further, he declared his message to be inspired here, given to him by God. Notice in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And that word shepherd in most versions of the Bible is in the uppercase, uh, capitalized, and, and recognized to be a reference uh, to God. And further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. And so he's referring here uh, to the Lord that all that is rightly recognized as being truth and wisdom, that it comes from God and uh, that What he has written here has come from God and the whole progression of it in order to get to the point that we're right on, you know, the the, uh, horizon of stepping into in in, uh, just a moment. When he says in verse 12, and further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books, there is no end and of much study and much study is wearisome to the flesh. He's not commending ignorance in our life or that we cease to be readers or that we have a negative view of learning. He's warning against permitting the endless flow 
of books on the subject of life and the meaning of life to rob us of God's wisdom and of his truth. That we're to make God's word the chief source of our study related to that subject and really the only source uh, related to that subject. He comes to his conclusion. Some of you have been waiting six weeks to come to the conclusion of this perky book And we come to it now in verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He says, here it is. You want to know the meaning and the purpose of life, where it's found, the escape from the emptiness and frustration of life. It is found, number one, in fearing God and keeping his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or bad evil. And so life, its meaning, its purpose is found in an obedient relationship with God. And everything else is an empty and frustrating existence uh, at best. And I want you to notice that true life here, as as he declares it, life as God intends it, isn't found in just acknowledging the existence of God. Yes, I know there is a God out there somewhere. And it isn't just in, found in, a, in, a, um, in the life of a person who has put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, but have not then taken the further step of now living a life of obedience to God's word. He says, this is where life is found, not only in knowing that there is a God, not only in being saved, but then living a life in relationship with God that is marked by obedience to him. That's the richest, fullest life. That's life as God intended it uh, to be. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he who has my commandments and keeps them. It's he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and manifest or reveal myself to him. And so that is the meaning and the purpose of life, to be engaged in a personal, obedient relationship with the Lord. You say, that's it? That's it? You say, it took Eleven and a half chapters of that build up to something that simple? Exactly right. This is what I do. I mean, you think that Solomon would take another 15 chapters to describe all of this? He doesn't want to do that. The meaning and the purpose of life is found just in that place. It's simple as can be, and God intended it to be simple. To know God, to put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, begin a relationship with him, then to learn his word and obey his word and commune with him, grow in that relationship as a result of that. Solomon says that's the greatest life that a person can possibly live. And it's the truth. St. Augustine said famously, he said to the Lord, you have made us, O Lord, for yourself, and our heart will find no rest uh, 
until it rests in you. Only a life lived for God is worthy of living. Everything else is empty and it is frustrating. That's the point of the book. So you and I are never going to have the kind of gold that Solomon had or the access to learning or sin or hobbies or all of these other kinds of things. And so he went on the search for us and said, listen, I've looked everywhere. I haven't developed my own philosophy and tried to live under that. It's all nonsense. It's all emptiness and frustration. It's all found in knowing God and walking with God, which tells us if we're in that place tonight, that we are living the greatest life a person can live this side of heaven. Oh, it will get better in heaven, but it is the greatest person, life a person can live. And I believe that, and I am thankful for that. Before we close tonight, I've used up all of my time, but I would like us to spend, having finished the book tonight, I do want us to sing one song to the Lord together before we dismiss, led by the worship team, in order to just take a moment and to say, God, thank you for delivering me from the emptiness and the frustration of the life that I once lived. Thank you for the life that I get to live now. And in our own way, just give him praise. And so if the worship team would come forward, lead us in uh, worship here for a couple of minutes, and then... I'll pray for us and we'll dismiss with another song.